If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Two quick things before we jump into the audio for the monsters under my bed. One, if you want a physical copy of the book yourself, you can read it, you know, whenever you want. Um, it will be linked down in the description below. And now we also have face masks available in the Teespring store. Same design as what's on the hoodies and t-shirts. I just saw that Teespring was offering a face mask option. So I figured uh, let's help flatten the curve a little bit and represent the channel with a nice little message of being nice to everyone and taking care of everybody. So that's it. Without further ado, here is the monsters under my bed. As of writing this, I'm only 25. I know I'm still a kid through the eyes of many. Most of you reading this probably feel that way, but that doesn't mean I don't have a lot of stories to tell. I know with age you gain more and more life experience, leaving you with a plethora of tales. So many, in fact, you can probably pull one from your brain to fit any occasion. And to be honest, I envy that. I feel like I've always been somewhat of a storyteller. Started with poetry, moved to music, which was terrible and shall never see the light of day, before moving into short stories. My avenue of sharing these has changed over the years, of course. With the internet forever growing and expanding, it's pretty easy to get yourself out there. Even if no one sees it. What began as a composition book I picked up at my Walmart back in my hometown turned into a spiral notebook which eventually evolved into online writing forms, places like Writer's Cafe or Reddit. Soon, though, I discovered the community of Creepypasta and enveloped myself in it. Story after story, I found myself drowning in spooky spaghetti, and I loved it. I've always loved it. Not just scary stories, stories in general. But scary stories is, of course, what this collection is all about. With that said... These are not of the creepy pasta or no sleep variety. All the stories in this collection I've amassed over the last 25 years are mine and mine alone. Instances of odd occurrences that still stick with me some 10, 15, and even 20 years later. Some are scarier than others. Some are just plain weird, but they're mine. And I can't wait to share them with you. My aunt's house was one of my favorite places when I was growing up. I can't really put into words as to why, though. There was just something special about it. The way the scent of cigarettes hit you as you entered, the squeaky floor in the entryway, the yellow countertops in the kitchen, or even that giant dining table with the glass top that was always set up with placemats at each chair. Whatever it was, it just felt safe. I suppose lived in would be a good way to put it. My aunt, who I'll call Aunt Mill from this point forward, had an eye from what went where and how to frame everything like a painting. 
even the things she didn't like, that being the deer heads my uncle insisted on keeping up, she made them work. It was my home away from home, really. A place I could go to escape my two older brothers after they beat me eight times in a row playing Yu-Gi-Oh. So imagine my shock when things began to feel not so... welcome. It started when I was just around four or five years old. At this time, my uncle would head out of town hours and hours away to a hunting lodge with a ton of his other manly friends who liked to kill things. During these times, Aunt Mill, who suffered a few anxiety attacks over the years, would invite me over to stay with her so she wouldn't be alone. Of course, she didn't need to ask. She'd bought a PS1 and Spyro the Dragon. What more could a four-year-old ask for? But like I said, I also loved her to the moon and back, and honestly loved spending time with her. When our day was spent, though, we'd retreat to our respective bedrooms, hers on the right side of the hallway all the way at the end, and mine on the left, right in the middle. I liked that room a lot, because there was a small light outside the doorway in the hall that was just bright enough so I could see my hands in front of my face, though not much else. Right above it was a portrait of Babe Ruth. At least, I think that's who it was. I remember staring at that little light until my body gave out and I fell asleep. Other nights, though, were much different. Some nights I would lay on my back and stare at the ceiling until I fell asleep. I'm not sure why, but I suppose it was comfortable back then. Nowadays, I couldn't imagine doing it, and I think what I'm about to tell you is the exact reason why. I would lay in bed waiting to fall asleep. But as soon as I closed my eyes, I immediately became much more aware of my heartbeat. I could feel it pump blood through my veins and out to my various extremities, but with each pump I felt something else as well. At every beat of my heart, I would feel myself spin. Of course, that's ridiculous. No one can feel the world spin, but it was the only way I could explain what was going on. It was so rhythmic. Beat, spin, beat, spin, beat, spin, until I felt like my head should be at the foot of my bed. I wouldn't say it scared me, but I do remember constantly opening my eyes to make it stop, so it at least made me uncomfortable. To this day, I've never felt it anywhere else, only in that bed in her house. I've even gone as far as to try and recreate the sensation. I lay down at a bed in a pitch black room and just close my eyes and wait. I become more conscious of my breathing and my heart, but remain still. I suppose I was still all those years ago too, but you get what I'm saying. I've tried looking into it, but all I can find are places saying I have vertigo because I don't know how not to say I felt the room spinning. That's what's so strange about it. The room itself wasn't spinning. I was. And even then, it wasn't a fluid motion. The movement felt similar to what a second hand on a clock looks like. Quick movements with stops in between. But that was just the beginning of strange things to come from Matt Mill's house. In that same room, right by that same nightlight under the Babe Ruth painting, I'd see something. It would come when I wasn't looking directly at it. I'd be lying on my back, 
feeling my heart beat like usual, but slowly that nightlight would phase out and eventually disappear. Being that I was now in the dark, I dart my head over and the light would appear again. Of course, there is probably some reasonable explanation for this, like the brain focusing more on what's straight ahead rather than what's to the side of you, especially when all that is, is an empty hallway. But when I was a kid, that hallway wasn't empty, and I'm not 100% sure even now if it was. You see, it wasn't always out of my peripheral vision. Sometimes that dark blob of nothing would show up while I stare at the nightlight. One night sticks out in particular. I'd had trouble getting to sleep for some reason. It could have been something to do with school, I had started a year early at just four, or it could have just been a bad dream, but whatever reason it was, I couldn't fall asleep. I rolled off of my back onto my right side to stare into the amber glow of that hallway light, hoping it would bring me some kind of much-needed relief from whatever it was that was ailing me. As I stared, though, I noticed, instead of feeling warm and fuzzy like I usually did at my Aunt Mel's house, I suddenly felt engrossed in dread and a feeling that told me something is here that shouldn't be. That thing was the blob of darkness to the right of the doorframe. Trying to envision it now, my brain fills in a lot of the blanks and creates somewhat of a shitty Ghost Adventures-esque reenactment, but I know it's far too dramatic. In reality, this mass floated low to the ground like a predator trying to sneak in on me. It enveloped the floor first before it made it just past the threshold of the room and started to make its way up the doorframe. All the while, it continued outward, down the hall, and slowly back around before the light, the one that I loved so much, was nearly gone. That's when I would roll over. In kid logic, if you can't see something, it doesn't exist. That's what I told myself as I ignored the overwhelming feeling that at any moment, something would reach out and touch me. Something I find myself worrying about now while reading this. But of course, it never did. That mass, whatever it was, never stopped messing with me until my room was moved into the room at the end of the hall. Still on the left side. For reasons I don't know... I just never saw it after that. Unfortunately, this new room wasn't free from strange occurrences. As I said, the mass never returned, but now the attic door was in my view. And this is where the boogeyman, or boogerman as my Aunt Mill called it, lived, and this is why I wasn't allowed up there. I know now, and maybe even then, that the Boogerman wasn't a real thing, despite me thinking up all the different ways he could have taken form. Would he be covered in boogers? Was he made of boogers? Would his snot-covered feet make wet squelching sounds as he made his way into my room? And what the hell did he do once he was in there? Steal my boogers? All questions that I'm sure the scholarly of scholars debate on a regular basis. But I kid. The Boogerman wasn't my worst fear in that room. 
the kitchen was. To this day, and most likely till the day I keel over, I will not have an explanation for this that will make me say, yeah, that makes sense. It was another late night, maybe around midnight or one in the morning. I was most likely five at this point, still very much a kid, but probably at least an inch taller. As I laid there trying to get some rest for the next day, my body just wouldn't give in. I could hear my aunt snoring in the room across the hall, alone. My uncle was off on one of his hunting trips again, no doubt, so it was just Aunt Mill and I. She didn't have any children or any pets. So, when I heard the silverware drawer open, rattle, and close, I froze. Honestly, rattle isn't even the correct term. To give yourself an idea of what I heard that night, at midnight or so, go into your kitchen and open your silverware drawer and shake it. Shake it till all the spoons, forks, knives, and plastic straws you'd swear you use but never did are out of place. That is what I heard. In a house that was totally empty, aside from us two, one of which was sleeping and the other who was hearing something from the kitchen, so it obviously wasn't me. At some point, between age four and five, I developed somewhat of a curious nature. I had slowly learned what ghosts were and had convinced myself they existed. But I wanted to see one. I threw my little feet over the edge of the bed and creeped to my doorway. I listened in to make sure my aunt was still sleeping, she was, and to see if this nighttime visitor was going to go after the plates in the cabinet next. A few seconds passed, and when I felt like the coast was clear, I made my way down the hall, which felt like eight miles, to the light switch. Now, the way the house was laid out, you couldn't see into the kitchen from the light switch in the hallway, so when I flicked it on, it didn't do much more than light the rest of the way. Still, that was better than what I'd expected, that being some kind of ghostly creature swooping its way out of the front door, or perhaps the boogerman was real all along, and he would have made his way over to me in a fashion not unlike the blob. No, all that happened was the kitchen was now bathed in a soft light similar to the nightlight just a few feet behind me. In my nightgown, I tiptoed around the corner into the kitchen. Nothing. It was totally empty. Everything was in place. Even the silverware. Let me explain. Once I was in the kitchen and saw everything was how it should have been, I checked the one thing that brought me there in the first place. The silverware drawer. Think back a paragraph or so when I told you to shake your silverware drawer. I assume if you did it, everything was pretty out of place, right? The drawer I was looking at was impeccable. There were no spoons, forks, knives, or plastic straws we'd swear we use out of place. It was just how it would have been left after the dishes had been put away. I slowly put things together in my head. I know for a fact that sound was the silverware drawer. There was nothing else in the house that could have produced that sound. With that in my head, I thought how it could have happened if everything was in place as it should have been. It didn't make sense, and that scared me more than the initial sound. All these thoughts happened in a nanosecond, because I remember vividly that moment I saw the drawer looked as if it hadn't been touched, I hauled ass back to my room. I'm not sure I didn't break the sound barrier in the process. I was finished with whatever the hell was going on, and I put my back to the door, squeezing my eyes shut so hard the lids nearly ripped open like that one episode of Spongebob, 
And somehow, I eventually fell asleep. I never told my aunt, or my uncle for that matter, about the strange things that took place. From what I gathered, they weren't the kind to believe in ghosts, men covered in boogers, or sapient silverware drawers. Emil passed away, and I've not gone back to that house for some time. Sure, my uncle still lives there, but without my Aunt Mel, it's empty. In the end, I'm not 100% sure that what happened in that house was simply my imagination or if something strange was really going on. Either way, it set the groundwork for how I would view the idea of ghosts. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply forever. The activity all but stopped for quite some time after that. For whatever reason, from around the age 5 to 13, nothing that notable happened, at least in the unexplained area of my life. As for my life that didn't revolve around ghosts and the world spinning, I was cemented into reality when I was caught with a pocket knife at school. I had no intention of using it, of course, I just thought it was cool. The principal, Mr. Mace, didn't. Ten days suspension and 90 days at an alternative school. That's a fancy way of them saying, this is where the kids we can't handle go. The young lads and lassies who were dealt a rough hand and seemed to have no way out other than raising hell. It was rough, and I suppose whatever was around me as a kid saw I was going through enough as it is until I was out of there and back to regular school. By the time I was back in high school, ninth grade at the time of this first story, my interest in the paranormal was peaking. Ghost Hunters, their international counterpart, ghost adventures with Zach Bagans and that bald guy who always gasps and says, Dude! and numerous other shows of the same vein were always on my television. Being 13, I had no doubt that all they discovered and discussed was real. I was quite naive, I tell you, watching them talk about shadow figures on my 13-inch Spongebob television. Now, I'm sure much of what you see on television is either blatantly fake or reenacted for a better edge-of-your-seat moment before they cut to a commercial. But, when what you've seen on television makes its way into your life, they can be incredibly sobering. It was around Christmas time. I know this simply because Aunt Mel was busting her ass to get her house ready. If you knew her before she got sick, you would understand how much putting on a show meant to her. Everyone from her side, my uncle's side, and my mom's side would come over on Christmas Day to have a dinner, and every year, that house was like an attraction you'd pay to see. Every tree in the yard was covered in lights. The porch was covered also. I'm sure you'd be able to see that yard from space on Christmas night. She never skipped on the inside, though. The large sunroom, which was actually a walled-in carport, was where the tree was set up. I can't recall now, but I know it was well over six or seven feet, and every inch of it was covered in lights and ornaments. It had to be, because it spun ever so slowly. Every angle of that tree had something to look at. 
Of course, there were wreaths, more lights, tablecloths, throw pillows, and more on the inside of the house. Even the bathroom wasn't spared a makeover. I explain all this because I want you to understand how much work went into it. Even when I was 13 or 14, Aunt Mel would start to struggle with anxiety, so my brother Daryl and I helped her for about three days straight. Our work days would start around 10 or so in the morning and end around 8 that night. Me being the age I was, I believed that sleep was for the week, so I wouldn't doze off until about 3 or 4 in the morning. No matter what time I zonked out, I was always ready at 10 the following morning. On the third day, though, I was running on around 8 hours of sleep over the course of those 3 days. I called it quits early, around 6, and headed home, skipped dinner, and went straight to bed. When I woke up the next morning... I couldn't move. I don't mean that in a, Haha, I'm so tired, I can't move. I mean I literally could not move. To make, thing, <sighs> to make things worse, I couldn't open my eyes either. I was lying on my stomach, one arm under the pillow propping it up, the other one off to the side. At the time, I had no clue what sleep paralysis was, so I began thinking that something was incredibly wrong. I could feel my heart rate rising steadily, and my breathing was starting to get erratic. All I wanted to do was move. And then I felt it. A cold hand grabbing my left ankle. For context, my closet was at the foot of my bed. The closet door was open because there were too many clothes on the floor to close it, but there wouldn't have been anyone in there. I'm not sure anyone could have fit anyway. The grasp this hand had on my ankles was fairly tight, and somehow I convinced my body to shake that ankle and the feeling dissipated. Unfortunately, that paralysis didn't. In my head, I was saying something is wrong, you need to wake up, get up, move, move, move. But those thoughts were interrupted by a familiar icy grip, this time on my right ankle. As soon as the grip tightened, I was able to shake my ankle once again, but that was it. Once that shake was done, I was back to being a statue. Again, I told myself to move or to call for help. Just wiggle a finger, I said, but it didn't work. And then it happened. The icy grip that I felt sent tremors through my body, causing miles of goosebumps to rise, returned. This time on both ankles. And this time, whatever was connected to those hands was pissed. The hold became stronger than it had the time before, and now the hands started pulling. I felt my legs start to move down the bed toward my closet. My knees were just shy of the foot of my bed. My shirt had started to roll up under me. My pillow slowly slipped out from under my head. And then, I moved. My body finally picked up on the signals firing off from my brain that something wasn't right. All in one motion, my eyes opened, I let out the breath I didn't know I was holding, and I pulled my legs to my chest and screamed for my mom. It was all I knew to do. Mainly because I saw a face. 
Its eyes were hollow, its face long. It was reminiscent of the ghost face mask from Scream, but the eyes and mouth were held in more of a scowl. Ironically enough, I probably resembled Ghostface more than this thing did. It was angry, and I remember it trying to scream. I suppose it did. I know I heard it, but it sounded so far away, like it was coming from a different dimension. I sat there for a moment, completely dumbfounded. The scream I thought I'd let out must have been more of a whimper because when I mustered up the strength to get out of bed, it was around 8 in the morning and everyone was still asleep. I kept this experience to myself, never telling my parents, but bringing it up when people asked, what's the scariest thing that's ever happened to you? I still pull that story out from time to time because out of all the stories in this collection, it's one that I would say really had an impact on me. I remember being nervous to go into my room for at least two or three days and forcing my closet door shut in hopes of keeping that face in there. I did have other smaller and less terrifying episodes while we lived there. One that has stuck with me in particular is from around the same time as the first one. Maybe a new year had started by now, I'm not sure, but I do know I was well aware of what was happening. It started with me waking up in the same situation as before, lying on my stomach with my body in the most comfortable and probably ridiculous looking position as possible. As I lay there, trying to stay calm and tell myself to wake up, I feel our cat, Gizmo, real creative on our part, jump onto my bed and make his way into the closet. At this point, I was still a little timid about the closet, but not enough to move the dirty clothes out, which gave Gizmo a perfect spot for one of his many naps of the day. What felt like just a few seconds later, my body picked up on my panic signals and I woke up, this time like a normal person and not someone who was just pulled out of their bed. Of course, when I did, I looked down at the closet to see Gizmo. He wasn't there. I'm not sure why, but this didn't scare me as much as it probably should have. Feeling something crawl over your legs while you're sleeping is pretty weird, but it didn't strike me as such. Sleep paralysis didn't return for quite some time, but when it did, it was nearly just as bad as my first experience. But that is all the way in my 20s. We'll get to that later. There were a few other strange, but not terrifying experiences. Chronologically, this one comes before the sleep paralysis episode, because I vividly remember, for some reason, recording a voice memo on my pink razor, just a minute or so after it happened. It was around 2 in the morning, and I wanted to go out and smoke. Yeah, I was like 12 at this time, but I had some really bad influences around me. I'd reached under my mattress to grab one of the three or four menthols my friend had given me and grabbed the grill lighter that I stole from my uncle's grill, specifically for this reason, and went out to the back door. I'd smoked in the house before, but my mom picked up on it. She'd stopped smoking at least three to four years at this time, and even though my dad still was, she knew my room shouldn't have smelled like smoke. When I was outside, I'd always stand at the far end of the house, furthest away from my Aunt Mill's house. Standing there, no one would see me, unless my oldest brother, Robbie, decided to look out of his bedroom window. 
I puffed the cancer stick until it burnt down to the filter, put it out, and headed back inside, proud that I'd found a way to outsmart my parents. As I stepped into the living room from the kitchen, I heard something fairly heavy falling into a mixing bowl that was sitting in our drying rack. It scared the hell out of me, sure, but at the time, I was more worried about the sound waking up my parents. I walked over to investigate and put the jar back, and when I did, I noticed the cabinet was closed. When I opened it, all the other jars were sitting nice and pushed back, far away from the edge, no doubt to stop this very thing that had just happened from happening. Seeing that made some things click that helped me understand that shouldn't have happened. That's when I ran to my room and recorded the voice memo I mentioned before. I'd give anything to hear that now. I'm sure it was something like, Okay, uh, I just heard a really loud bang in my kitchen. It was a jar, like a little mason jar thing, and it just flew out of the cabinet. The cabinet was closed. What the hell? Finally, and apparently this is common, but I heard my mom call my name numerous times when she wasn't there. Hell, sometimes Robbie and I were the only two home and I heard it. I was curious and looked into this, and it's what's known as an auditory memory. I suppose that makes sense, but it hasn't happened to me since we left that house, and it was always my mom's voice, never my dad's or my brother's voices. The house is no longer there. My uncle had it demolished after we moved, but I wonder if it's still standing, and my aunt and uncle rented it to someone else, if that face would appear to anyone else. Maybe a kid, naive and curious like I was, would have taken that middle bedroom and been awakened by an unknown force with a face ripped straight from their worst nightmares. I suppose I'll never know. But what I do know is the building just down the road from that house, a small community site for the church folk to spend holidays, was home to something even more unsettling. Now, I'm going to break my own rule here. So far, this book has been very linear. However, looking back, I'm not sure anything since what took place in that building was as terrifying. Of course, many would see that as a positive thing. My paranormal experiences seemingly peaked when I was young. Of course, that left room for real-world horrors. Things like getting to work on time, making sure our tags stay up to date, and of course, strangers in the middle of the night. It was my senior year of high school. I was far too old to be a senior, but of course that's what happens when you drop out for an entire year. That doesn't matter, though. What matters is that I was slowly getting closer and closer to getting out of school and traveling into the new chapter of my life, adulthood. Before this, of course, you have to work. My first job was at a Dunkin' Donuts in the town of Fuquay Arena. It used to be a sleepy town, but now there are way too many stoplights and medians in the road. It feels more like Raleigh, given all the traffic. The job there was incredibly toxic. No one there treated anyone with respect, and the day I got my first paycheck, my wife and I moved in with her mom from my parents' house. There wasn't much thought put into that, to be honest. My dad was asking for rents, while my mother-in-law said we could stay at her place for free. Given we were saving up to move an hour and a half away to Greensboro, it made sense. The job at Duncan came to an abrupt end after three months because I was fed up with being disrespected. I remember throwing my headset off saying, I can't deal with this shit anymore. 
I quit. My wife, sister-in-law, and I walked out, then went to Taco Bell for dinner. Overall, a pretty good day. The only issue now was that I was out of a job, and my wife was struggling to find one as well. Luckily, after just a week or so, I was able to land a job at a Wilco Hess. It's basically a truck stop gas station for those unfamiliar. We'd sold snacks, beer, cigarettes, and ironically enough, Dunkin' Donuts coffee and donuts. I was told later that's what really got me the job. The job at Hess, while stressful in its own right, customer service is an untamable beast, it worked out. I was making much more there than I was at Dunkin' since I was full-time. Everyone there was over 18, so they had at least a handful of brain cells. Then came the day, most likely four to five months after me being hired, that someone at a different store fell ill, and they'd be out for at least a week. It was such short notice, they had to pull someone from another store to cover their shifts. That person was me. Despite the idea of having to work at a new store sending my anxiety through the roof, I accepted because I knew it would look good to my boss. Also, the house I was going to work at was about a 10-minute drive from my mom's house, meaning my wife and I could stay there for some time while the worker recovered from whatever they'd gotten. The work was the same, and I was doing about as well as I had at the previous store, that being barely getting by because I have the social skills of a sea otter. The anxiety and worry that I was going to mess something up paled in comparison to what happened one night in my mom's neighborhood, though. When I say neighborhood, I'm being fancy. It was a trailer park, but a high-end one. For one, the roads connected all the houses and intersections, and they were paved, and everyone was either nice to you or didn't care enough to acknowledge you, both of which I was fine with. It was always fairly quiet as well, especially at night, which is why this experience was that much more scary. It started with my wife and I walking our dog, Roxy, around 8 p.m., I had to work in the morning, so we were going out to walk her and then head back in and go to bed. We stepped out of the house, went to the right until we reached the first intersection, and then turned left. I immediately noticed him. Someone else was walking around outside that night, and they were walking towards us. Now, if I'm not mistaken, it was either spring or summer at the time of this story. This person was wearing a hoodie and sweatshorts, and with every step, he would bang this huge sticky hat on the pavement. The whole time he was walking toward us, my wife didn't say anything to me, didn't grab my hand harder, or anything of the sort. This was weird to me, because she was more anxious than I was, especially around strangers in the middle of the night. Eventually, he passes us, and I take notice of his height when he does. He was at least as tall as me, maybe an inch taller, so around six foot or six foot one. Of course, he was behind us, so we didn't have anything to worry about. Well, that's what I thought as well. You know how when you're in an uncomfortable situation, you become hypervigilant and pick up on things you're not sure you would in a regular situation? That's what happened to me. I picked up on that thumping noise of the walking stick, even after he'd passed us. After just a few moments, I noticed it wasn't getting quieter. I took a quick look behind me and saw that this person had turned around and was now walking towards us. Though I tried to seem like I hadn't noticed him, I'm sure I let out an audible gasp as I turned my head back around. At this point, we were heading to the second-to-last intersection. I knew when we got there, a friend of the family's house was to the right. Trying to shake my uneasiness, I said, Hey babe, you want to head over to Tim's house and see what they're up to? 
Eh, I'm tired. I think I just want to walk her and get back home. Plus, you have to work tomorrow, so we shouldn't be up too late. Well, shit. I wanted to argue, but in my brain I thought it would be better to keep moving in case this person following us decided to use that stick for something other than walking. So, we continued on, the entire time this thumping noise echoing off the pavement until we reached the last intersection. As we turn left, a car pulls beside us and stops. Of course, not wanting to speak to a stranger at 8 in the night, we kept walking. Curious, I turned back around just in time to see the person following us toss the stick to the side, get in this car, and drive off. Once the car was out of sight, I told my wife everything. The guy with the stick, how he turned around to walk behind us, and eventually getting in the car. Finally, she was freaked as I was, and we went straight back to my mom's house. My mom and dad told me I was overreacting, and maybe I was, but that moment has stuck with me and had quite an impact. I find myself becoming anxious sometimes, even when I'm walking towards someone in broad daylight. I'm sure there were no ill intentions, and if this person I saw that night is by some crazy twist of fate listening to this, just know, there's no bad blood. Living in Greensboro proved to be much more of a beast than my wife Destiny and I planned it to be. Our first apartment was fairly nice, affordable enough, and everyone there was kind and seemed like they really cared. The other residents kept to themselves, there was a pool, it was great. The only issue we ran into was finding jobs. Being on our own now, we needed to be able to provide for ourselves as well. Our first dinner there was a Papa John's pizza, a two liter of soda, and some chocolate lava cakes. We sat on the floor and ate it straight out of the box, which was sitting on a side table because we didn't have our dining table set up yet. We did manage to dig out a candle and lit it, so our first dinner was at least somewhat romantic. Soon, though, we finished setting up the house, and by the first couple weeks, she was working as a babysitter for a woman with three kids. Des was always great with kids, and the woman paid well, so it worked out. While she was at work from about 8 a.m. to 4 p.m., I was at home alone. Most of the time I was looking for a job opening or working to get my YouTube channel off the ground. The YouTube channel never really took off, and I came to the realization that that wasn't going to be a job anytime soon. Fortunately for me, the target that was just down the road from our place called me back, and before I knew it, I was waking up at 4 in the morning every night to go put things on shelves for the next 4 hours. It was a decent job, but it was seasonal, so when the holidays passed, I was laid off. Before I knew it, I was back on the search for a new job. Luckily, this time it only took a few months. Harris Teeter turned out to be my saving grace, and the best job I've ever had. It was another stocking job, but that was perfect for me. I could stay at home all day and work on that YouTube channel that never took off, and then work all night. The pay was great, the people were great, and the environment was great. I stayed with Harris Teeter for about four years. Even when we moved to a nicer apartment, I stayed with it. Now, this new apartment, while nicer, proved to be a bit of an issue for me. I'm not sure why, but it was at this point that my sleep paralysis made a roaring return. It began as a low, guttural growl before crescendoing into a horrid event that I'll never forget. The days leading up to it had been especially brutal at work. 
We were getting hammered pretty hard as a new double coupon deal was coming up, meaning we had tons of more product coming in than usual. I would end up having to go in early to organize all the products, something I did alone, and staying late to help finish up. When I did get home, I didn't go straight to bed like a normal person would. I'd make a pot of coffee, work on my new YouTube channel, the one I have now. This one was seeing actual success, so I decided I had to stick with it. One day in particular, I'd spent at least a few hours working on a new video before deciding to finally call it a day and lay down for a nap. My wife was off at work, so I was in the house alone. No dogs or cats at this time. I fell asleep pretty quickly, but when I woke up, to my absolute dismay, I couldn't move. Though my eyes were closed, I could tell by the amount of light on my face that I was facing toward our window. Behind me would have been a small hallway leading to our bathroom. On either side of the hall were doors, one led to my office, which was a closet, and the other opened to our washer and dryer. I never heard a door open or close. All I heard were the fibers of carpet being pushed down under someone's weight. The dread I was feeling was only slightly lifted when I heard this. I knew it was strange that I could hear someone walking on carpet like that, but I chalked it up to hyper-awareness. The steps continued from behind me, getting only slightly louder before stopping at the edge of the bed. Now, I was telling myself, no, it's probably Des getting home from work. She doesn't want to wake me up, so she's trying to be quiet. I wanted her to wake me up, though. I wanted to break out of this silent, frozen prison. So I waited for her to get into the bed, cuddle up to me and say, Hey, how are you sleeping? I waited for her to maybe sit on the edge of the bed and take her shoes off, but neither of those happened. It was quiet for maybe five to ten more seconds before finally... My eyes opened up, and I was awake. Fully awake. I sat up and looked around. No one. I was actually alone. I looked all through the house for any sign that she'd come in and maybe went to check the mailbox, but the front door was still locked. I kept trying to deny it, but when I went back to the bedroom, I checked my phone for the first time. It was about time for her to be home, but there was a text from her. Hey babe. She had to stay late for work or something, so I'm going to be a little late getting home, too. I'm not sure when, so if you want, go ahead and make that pizza that's in the freezer. I'll just eat something when I get home. I'll see you soon. I love you. I didn't want to move. She wasn't home and hadn't been home. That text threw out any scenarios I'd confided in to explain away the events of a few minutes before. Now, when I think back to it, my mind goes to all kinds of different scenarios. What would I have seen if I had rolled over sooner? Was there anything there in the first place? Was my mind simply trying to fill the empty space with sound and I misconstrued the noise? In reality, I know sleep paralysis can cause hallucinations, both auditory and visual, but some part of me feels like there was always something there. Perhaps that face from my closet all those years ago found its way to me again and wanted to say hello. Now, it's finally time to travel back to that community building. Unlike my childhood home, it's still standing, though I have no interest in going back to it. 
Around the time I was 13 or 14 was when Daryl and I really started to hang out there. It was a simple building. On the outside, there was a sheltered area with two picnic tables where the church folk would sit to eat. There was a large metal tub-like thing on four skinny legs that was always totally empty or housed the occasional dead spider. This would be where the ice and drinks would go. Beside that were two large green doors that we later found out led to a small kitchen. There were two doors in the kitchen, not counting the ones that led back out to the shelter. There was one that led outside to the side of the building, and another that went into a very large cooking area. If I'm remembering correctly, there was a hefty pit that housed mountains of charcoal. There were grates on top of it as well. In all respects, the place was about as bland as it could be. There was nothing of interest to either me nor Daryl, but when our friend Warren came by to hang out one day, we concocted the wonderful idea of conducting our very own ghost hunt. Warren was very open to the paranormal, almost to the point of being completely terrified by it. Still, our curiosity got the better of us, and one night, we made our way in. Now, I don't condone what we did. Staying under the shelter to get shade from the North Carolina summers was fine, but when we decided to check it out that afternoon before we investigated our first time, we had to break in. Technically, we didn't break anything except my middle school ID card, which I used to jimmy the lock open. Again, I don't condone this one bit. It was stupid, we were stupid, but what are you going to do? This was over 10 years ago. Either way, we now had a way in. We made sure to unlock the door from the inside and leave it unlocked when we left so it would be open when we got back. I'm not sure either of us were expecting what happened in that building. The first night we were anxious as hell, partly because it was pitch black outside and partly because we'd already convinced ourselves the place was an opening to Satan's bedroom or something equally as terrible. I was the one with the most knowledge about how to do an investigation, having watched at least 10,000 hours of it on television, so I started with the most basic question you can imagine. Is there anyone here? We sat there for a moment, each on different sides of the kitchen, Warren on a stool and myself upon a small table, my feet dangling just above the concrete floor. And then... Tap. I remember hearing it, and both of us taking in a breath and holding it for a second. I whispered over to Warren, Did you hear that? He responded weakly with a simple, Uh huh. I'd be lying if I said my excitement wasn't through the roof. I was 100% sure we just communicated with something from the other side. Then my rational mind took over. I can't tell you how old this building was. It definitely wasn't ancient or anything, but it was old enough to house its fair share of rats and other nocturnal creepy crawlies. I explained this to Warren, saying it was probably a squirrel or something. We'd agreed, but then he called out and said, If you're here, can you make that noise again? Tap, tap twice in a row, just seconds after the last word left his lips. Now we were a bit worried. Could it be that we really stumbled onto something here? We continued our line of questioning, asking for one tap if the answer was no, and two taps if the answer was yes. Is there someone here? Tap, tap. Are you friendly? Tap, tap. Are you a boy or a girl? One tap if you're a boy, two if you're a girl. Tap. Are you alone? I remember 
the long pause before this question received a response. We were both just sitting there in the darkness, waiting to hear some otherworldly thing tap on an old cutting board. I couldn't tell you what Warren was thinking, but I'm sure it wasn't far off from what I was thinking. That being, what the hell's going on? You have to understand something. At this point, my eyes had adjusted and I could see Warren's face fairly clearly. I would have seen him tapping on something to freak me out, but I never saw his hands move. Furthermore, the cutting board I mentioned was on my side of the room and about three feet from me. The only thing behind him was a metal counter, a sink, and some cooking utensils. Eventually, we heard one singular tap. Great, I thought to myself. Not only is there a little girl here, easily one of the scariest things I can imagine while it's nearly pitch dark around you, there is something else here too. But then the tapping ceased. No matter the question, we couldn't get a reaction. We tried for around 20 minutes or so before one of us asked, Do you want us to leave? The room was dead silent. My eyes were fixated on Warren, making note of his movements. If he bolted for the door, I didn't want to be far behind. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. More time passed with a silence so thick you could have cut it with the knives that were left in the sink from the church's last get-together. Then I noticed it. Right behind Warren's head, a large metal colander lifted up ever so slightly. Before the words could leave my mouth, it came crashing down behind him on the metal countertops, causing a cacophony of noise that shattered the thick quiet I'd gotten used to. We both screamed. We both ran, slamming the door shut behind us. We ran all the way back to my house before stopping at the edge of my trampoline to catch our breath. Both of us just sat there, nearly wheezing from forcing our bodies to go from resting to breakneck speed so quickly. Eventually, we calmed down, but we didn't talk about what was in there or what picked up that colander. We didn't need to discuss what happened. We just knew that something was in there. And for some unfathomable reason, we wanted to go back. I believe it was a few days, maybe even a few weeks, before we went back. As a matter of fact, we ventured back into that building on two separate occasions. Our first trip back, we managed to bring along another close friend of ours, Cody. Cody was just like Warren. He was very aware of the paranormal and downright had no interest in messing with it. Somehow, we'd convinced him that something was going on, and while he stood in the doorway the entire time, our second time in, he wasn't safe from what was in there. The night started like any other. The streetlight that was nearby actually decided to work that night, and that, coupled with the door being open and the light under the shelter being on, it wasn't nearly as dark. Still, just as unsettling, though. That was the strange thing about this place. You know how you can just walk into a place and you know something is up? Like you shouldn't be there. 
This community building radiated that kind of energy. And that energy came out those last two nights. The night Cody was with us, the investigation, if you can even call it that, followed the same basic principle. We explained to the little girl, whom we'd established was about six or eight at that point, through our tapping system, and the man who was with her, that we were just here to talk again, and we'd brought a friend along with us. I remember looking over Cody, expecting him to say hi or something, but honestly, he was already frozen in place. I gave myself a nervous chuckle at his demeanor. We started a new line of questioning, trying to get in contact like we had before, but nothing seemed to be working. The questions, are you here, do you remember us, and the like, were all met with silence. That was when Warren decided to get on her level. Something that, in all honesty, was my idea. I'd seen on Ghost Hunters that the main investigators would squat down or kneel when they thought they were dealing with a young spirit. He went to the middle of the room and kneeled. I stayed in my spot from our previous investigation, my feet still dangling above the floor, and if I had to fancy a guest, Cody had backed up at least two paces. He held out his hand and said, If you're here, let us know. We want to talk to you again. Silence filled the room once again. The phrase, you could hear a pin drop, couldn't do this silence justice. It was as if someone had pressed the mute button on life. My heart, although it was beating nearly out of my chest to the floor by my dangling feet, didn't even make a sound as it sent blood through my system. I couldn't hear the nervous and short breaths from Cody, nor the shaky and scared ones from myself. And then it happened. Out of nowhere, Warren screamed and numerous expletives slipped on the loose dirt that littered the floor, nearly falling to his face before he pushed past Cody to get out of that room. I wasn't far behind. I had no idea what happened, but given his reaction, I knew I didn't want to be in there with whatever it was. When I made it out and shut the door, Warren was halfway up the small hill near the road. He was sitting up on the wet grass, his legs pulled up with his head resting on his kneecaps. I looked over at Cody, who just said, That's not good, dude. There was genuine worry in his voice when he said it. Warren is the type of guy to laugh off a scare just moments after it happens, whether that be a scary movie or a friend jumping out from behind a doorway. And looking over to him, I thought that's what he was doing. Even from about 15 feet away, I could see his back lifting up and down quickly as his lungs filled and released air. I was sure he was just laughing. But when we got closer, we saw that he was actually hyperventilating and crying. Warren, to this day, suffers from asthma, so Cody and I immediately told him to try and take deep breaths and relax. It took some time, sure, but eventually he was able to regulate his breathing. All three of us were sitting on the grass now, our jeans and shoes wet from the rainwater that seeped out from the ground due to our weight. Didn't matter to us. We were just trying to console our friend. Finally, Warren was able to respond to the question of, Are you alright, man? What the hell? With a weak and trembling... Yeah. 
We probably shouldn't have pushed it any further at this time, but we couldn't help it. Well, I couldn't help it. I'm sure Cody would have been fine not knowing what happened. Nevertheless, I asked him, So what the hell happened in there? Why'd you run out? His head was up off his knees now, but he wasn't looking at either me or Cody. He just stared through the window of the building, his eyes bloodshot and puffy from the tears when he said softly, Something grabbed me in there. When I had my hand out, something grabbed it. It was quite some time before we ventured back into that building. For one, that night scared the hell out of all three of us. Seeing a friend in tears like that because something you couldn't see grabbed him, it was surreal. The idea of going back in did come up here and there, as we still spent time under the shelter, but we never were there after nightfall. That energy, that thick, negative atmosphere, had seemingly seeped from the closed doors and out into the surrounding area. It envelops everything around it and only grew stronger as the night came on. When we did go back in, it was sometime in the fall, possibly November or October. I remember it being very cold outside, despite it not being totally dark just yet. It was just me and Warren again, and we jimmied our way in since they'd repaired the lock from our previous ventures. Once we were in, it felt like we unknowingly agreed that this would be the last time we set foot in that building. We took our seats in the same spot as every other time, got quiet, and began asking our questions. That quiet never left. There were no responses to our questions, and if the room had gotten colder through the presence of a spirit, the frigid air would have masked it. It was about half an hour sitting in the dark that I decided to take a risk. I announced that I was going to make myself vulnerable and had made the decision to lie down on the table I was sitting at. I put my back flush to the table, getting a rush of adrenaline from the cold surface, and because my brain was processing how bad of an idea it was. I'm not sure how long I was laying there. Could have been a few minutes, maybe a whole nother hour, but what I do know is I have no explanation for what I saw. At first I assumed my eyes were playing tricks on me. Sure, my eyes had adjusted to the dark somewhat, but I would still see the occasional dark spot in the corner or out of my peripheral. The darkness I was seeing now was above me, seemingly on the ceiling. That's why it didn't bother me much at first. I blinked a handful of times and really tried to focus on it, but when I'd done that before, the shadow would eventually dissipate when I'd be able to make out what I was looking at, but this time, it wouldn't go away. As I blinked more and more, I began to understand that not only was this not a shadow, it also wasn't on the ceiling. It was just inches from my face, and it was a hand. I screamed, threw myself off the table, nearly falling just as Warren did when he was grabbed and flew out of the building up the hill to the streetlight. I can't help but notice the similarities in mine and Warren's reaction. In a fight-or-flight situation, we're both taking flight. The hand itself wouldn't have been as terrifying as it was if I was able to recognize it as something I'd seen before. When you envision a hand, you see five fingers, a palm, maybe some fingernails, whatever. What I saw was more of a claw. There were five fingers, but they were all capped off with talon-like nails that protruded out far beyond anything even remotely normal. 
That image is still incredibly vivid in my brain, and I hate to think what would have happened if I'd sat there a little while longer. I explained all this to Warren the best I could, and he had the appropriate action of saying we should go home. His mom and stepdad were coming to pick him up later that night anyway, so it would have been better for us to be at my house. When they showed up, it was just Warren's stepdad Billy and his uncle. I can't remember his name for the life of me, so I'll just call him Bo. If you knew who I'm talking about, that would make a lot of sense. Billy came in the house to talk with my parents for a while, just to make sure Warren had behaved and been respectful. Billy was always kind of overbearing, and of course my mom said he was. Then the topic of what we'd been up to came about. Oh, they went on a little ghost hunt up the road, my mom said. Something in Bo and Billy clicked. We explained, and Billy allowed us to show them the building we were talking about. We all jumped in Billy's truck and headed down the road to the community building. Billy explained to us on the short drive that he and Bo had dabbled in black magic and spent a large time with Wiccans in high school. They claimed they knew there was something on the other side and they could see it. I suppose they were both mediums of some sort. When we pulled up, they both fell silent. Just looking at the building, they knew something was in there. They made their way down the hill. Warren and I stayed in the truck, and as they disappeared into the black void, I felt myself getting tense. There were no bugs out this time of the year, so we heard everything they were saying and doing. We heard their shoes dragging over the dirty concrete floor, and both of them whispering to each other, though we couldn't figure out what they were saying. I thought at the time we couldn't understand them because we were so far away, but that proved to be wishful thinking. The incoherent whispers continued for some time before out of nowhere one of them screamed, I believe it was Bo, and both came careening out of the door and bolting it for the truck, the door slamming shut behind them, neither of them touching it on their way out. Now, Billy wasn't a small guy, but he wasn't fat either, really just a little chubby. Bo, on the other hand, was at least 6'1", and well over the qualifications of a heavyweight title, so when I say I saw him make it to the truck and in it before Billy was halfway up the hill, I knew it was time to go. Once we were all back in the truck, feeling a false sense of security, Billy turns to us and says, Boys, don't y'all ever go back in that building. I was in shock. I thought most of what we'd seen was just our minds making things up, but I'd never seen a grown man genuinely terrified until that moment, and I'm not sure I have since. Bo wouldn't speak. I worked up the nerve to ask them what they saw. Billy, after a few deep breaths, said, First, we smelled sulfur. A smell of hell, like something dying. Then Bo started talking in some language I don't understand. I think what's in there took control of him for a bit. That must have been the whispering we heard. Then he paused. I saw something just appear in front of me. I, I don't know what the hell it was, but I know for a fact it wasn't ever human. He looked over at Bo as to make sure it was actually him sitting in the truck and not that thing that had him talking crazy, as Billy put it later. He then put the truck in gear and headed back to my house to drop me off. Before I got out, he looked in the rear view and said, Boys, please don't ever go in there again. Promise me. We assured him, and I left, wishing him a good night.
My experiences lately have been few and far between. Living where I am now, I've only had a few small bouts of sleep paralysis, and thankfully none that were as dreadful as the ones from years past. I've also found myself questioning what I believe when it comes to spirits and the afterlife. I knew when my aunt passed away, that was it. As pessimistic as it sounds, I didn't believe that her soul had stuck around. I'm not even sure if souls exist, but I found myself hoping that one day, if I ever went back to her house, I'd see her standing in the kitchen. Of course, it wouldn't be her, but rather her spirit. And that just sounds silly, no? Then again, I find myself thinking back to what took place in that community building with Bobby, Bo, Warren, and all my other friends who saw, heard, or were even touched by something. That just can't be coincidence, right? Or how about when I felt my shirt rolling up under me while I was being pulled down my bed while I was alone in my room? I just can't write that off, and yet I find myself doing just that. Do ghosts exist? I don't know. What I do know is there are just some things out there we cannot explain. And maybe that's for the best.